Somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I am Jeremy Scott, and it feels awfully good to be behind the microphone on a weeknight for a full two hours for you. Tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, the Mothman. I mean, just imagine something that, um, well, with glowing red eyes, something that if you saw it, you probably couldn't explain, at least not right away, something that has wings, something that flies and appears part human. Now, for over a year, back between November the 15th of 1966 and December of 1967, people around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, reported their encounters with just such an anomaly as which I have described. It was on this day, actually, 56 years ago, November 16th, 1966, when the first report appeared in the Point Pleasant Register newspaper with the headline, Couples See Man-Sized Bird, Creature, Something. That was the headline back then. It definitely was an unknown. I mean, what would you do in that scenario? There were reports of this object following people. The sightings have gone down to become part of West Virginia's folklore to this day. It was John Keel in his 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies, who brought the events to the mainstream and in that claimed there were supernatural events related to the sightings. It was a natural progression to have this conversation tonight considering the route that we've been going the last couple of shows talking about a lot of similarities between many of these paranormal supernatural aspects, cryptids, UFOs, altered states of consciousness, portals. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, hauntings. And the Mothman is just one of the cryptids, if we put it in that category, that people say that they have encountered over the decades. That book, by the way, later made into a movie in 2002 starring Richard Gere. Raise a hands. How many people have seen the Mothman prophecies? As far as a a supernatural event, we, we don't know for sure whether or not the collapse of the Silver Bridge was a supernatural event it certainly was a strange event and it could have been a coincidence or not my opinion is i tend to err on the other side of it being a coincidence maybe even closer towards the conspiracy side of things but the silver bridge for those who don't know carries traffic or did carry traffic over the ohio river on route 35 between west virginia and ohio It was a suspension bridge, and it collapsed during rush hour on December 15th, 1967. It killed 46 people. And witnesses had reported that the being that would come to be known as Mothman, this thing with glowing red eyes, was either standing on the bridge or was flying above it at the time 
of the collapsed. And then, of course, those sightings stopped. Uh, Or did they? That's the other part of this. But it was between the middle of November 1966 and the middle of December. So 13 months later of 67, a whole year and a month that people were reporting encountering Mothman. But as you'll hear on the program tonight, those are not the only stories that have been uncovered of creatures such as this. And as that headline said, man-sized bird, dot, 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 creature, dot, 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 something. Which indicates it was an unknown entity that these people were crossing paths with. So tonight we, uh, we open up a discussion about what actually happened 55 to 56 years ago around the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area. And in other places like Lake Michigan and whether there's a connection to a UFO craze. In 1966 as well, that happened before the Mothman sightings. Potential men in black encounters as well. Let's open up the vault right now in this first hour of the program with Steve Ward, who has been fascinated by the unexplained for over a half century. He currently lives in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and works at the Mothman Museum. Now, there were two major events that inspired his interest in the unexplained. One would be the legend of Mothman, as we've talked about. And the other would be the UFO craze that we hinted about in Michigan, which happened in March of 1966. You're going to hear about West Virginia and Michigan a lot tonight and some of the surrounding states uh, through which the body runs through on the program tonight. Welcome, Steve, to the program. So good to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So tell us about your first, I guess, when did you hear about the Mothman sightings? Well, the the uh, the sighting you alluded to, uh, it, was, it actually occurred on November 15th, uh, hit the newspapers the next day. The uh, Scarberries and the Mallets were two married couples that were driving through the what they call the TNT area. It had been nicknamed that for decades. That was uh, it was a huge complex during World War II, where they made uh, explosives for the war effort, and they stored them in these a uh, hundred of these concrete bunkers or igloos, as they called them. Well, by the '60s, it was pretty much abandoned. Uh, most of the buildings were gone. the The old North power plant was standing there, and uh, the, the the two couples uh, they uh, well they were driving. Uh, down the dirt road next to the old North power plant. And uh, Linda Scarberry said, what's that man doing standing in the road? Well, that man suddenly spread his wings and they noticed the red eyes and it seemed to kind of shuffle off toward the, the old power plant. Well, they took off and uh, as you pointed out, they were, they were followed by this thing into Point Pleasant on Route 62. Um, that particular sighting hit the wire services it went all over the world so i was uh, i was in junior high in michigan at the time 
And, uh, you know, I, I thought, how cool is that? You know, winged humanoid uh, chasing couples down a, a lonely country road. Um, it, this is even before Mothman had his, had his name given to him. They just called it the bird back then. And as you pointed out, this was on the heels of the march before we had this uh, uh, amazing wave of, uh, of UFO reports in Michigan. So that was, uh, I guess that kind of set me on the course that I ended up being on for the rest of my life. So in the Mothman wave, it started with these two couples, but then uh, additionally, there were more reports that came in over time. Is that correct? Right. I guess there was also one uh, a couple days before, if I remember correctly, and was it Clendenning? I don't know if I said that right. It was a uh, cemetery worker saw some kind of a large bird-like creature. Who, who knows if it was exactly the same thing? But when John Keel arrived on the scene, he uh, he came. He was down there several times throughout that year. He talked to a little over a hundred people that uh, had seen the the bird, the Mothman, and uh, generally speaking. The descriptions were about the same, uh, six, seven feet tall, man-like, red glowing eyes, and almost like it didn't have a head. It's almost like the eyes were sunken in his chest. Uh, the wingspan was only about 10 feet, which may not make much sense if we're, if we're trying to look at this as a biological creature. But uh, the, the, the strange thing about it was that it didn't, it didn't behave like a flesh and blood creature, although it seemed to leave footprints. There were all kinds of strange footprints around the, the old North power plant. Uh, but it, uh, uh, a biologist would probably say that a 10-foot wingspan isn't big enough to, uh, to carry something that tall. But also, it didn't always flap its wings. Sometimes it would put its wings behind it and take off straight like a helicopter. Um, it had other, there were other weird properties. Uh, uh, John Keel got a couple reports of people that saw it very close. And they, they almost, it almost sounded like it, there was some kind of a, a humming noise or mechanical noise coming from it. Now, that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. If it was a drone of some kind, it was pretty advanced. Uh, but then also uh, John Keel and another researcher, a Swedish researcher named uh, Franzen, who Keel had been corresponding with from Sweden, uh, he, uh, he followed Keel into Point Pleasant a year or two later. Both men discovered that many of the people that saw this thing had an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena in their home afterwards. And uh, it even, you know, it gets, it gets weirder. Uh, there was a, a woman named Pat Gray. She and her husband were missionaries. And one night, this apparition appeared in their bedroom that looked like the Mothman. I mean, it was this winged creature, red glowing eyes. The next day, they were, they were missionaries. They went off to a faraway country, didn't come back for several years. When they came back and they, they read that the, they had were keeping in touch with what was going on at home, they were surprised to see this about the Mothman and thought, well, this is what we saw manifest in our bedroom. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with a real paradox here. Uh, it was a paraphysical uh, was it biological was it an apparition it seems to be a little bit of all of them but if we if we listen to the reports and to what people were talking about one one other thing let me mention uh john keel discovered that people that had uh, you were talking about how these things are connected uh john keel found that uh uh, people that had experienced a cryptid or a UFO sometimes would suffer the same physical ailments, uh, sometimes like thirst, uh, muscle pains, and even uh, conjunctivitis. We're, we're familiar with uh, people that have seen, had close proximity to a UFO, bright light or whatever, and the next day it's that they have that eye burn. 
Well, Connie Carpenter, one of the original uh, witnesses, uh, she was uh, uh, driving past the Mason County golf course, and she saw this thing standing there. It was classic sighting. It put its wings behind it, took off straight like a helicopter. The next day, this is when Keel came down there to interview people, she had a case of conjunctivitis. She didn't see a UFO. She saw the bird. So I always tell people that the, the, the Mothman was uh, something of a paradox, at least its behavior. Interesting what you were saying earlier about the wingspan and about it being a flesh and blood animal. Uh, what what do you necessarily mean by that? No, I mean I mean if it was it was a biological am, animal, I think that the the wingspan would have to be much more than ten feet in order to okay. lift a, a man sized creature like that six or seven feet. So it may be it may have had some superhuman strength from who knows what. Yeah, we, you know, even John Keel would tell you that he didn't know what it was either. Um, so it, uh, it just, uh, it just, it doesn't make sense in a purely biological sense. So you mentioned the the physical characteristics of of the Mothman, but it always seemed to have uh, the glowing eyes in in all the reports yes. or almost all of the reports, right? That we've heard of most of them, yes. Can you just Im- imagine, uh, you know, being out there and having, you know, those eyes stalking you, Steve? Well, it, you know, it's it's something that shows up in a lot of reports, even uh, Bigfoot reports and other cryptid types. And it doesn't seem to be eye shine. It seems to be self-generated, self-generated. I, I don't know how I, I would I would react uh, to tell you the truth. You know, we we always hope that if we're confronted with uh, something like that, we're in the present moment and, and paying close attention and maybe even remembering to use our camera if we have a, a phone with us. But uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how I would react. I, I'm really the kind of person that uh, uh, doesn't really experience much of anything. Okay, as far as a camera, is there much photographic evidence of Mothman? I, uh, you know, I, not really. Um, uh, there are there, there have been uh, uh, photographs that uh, I've seen in 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 recent years uh, around disasters that uh, people will will have a uh, some kind of a winged creature. I, I just don't trust any of those with the way the, the you know uh, CGI is these days. Uh, but uh, hmm. there wasn't any 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 photographs taken back. In, in the in the sixties, yeah, have there been reports past the sixties? But a few, uh, and it's not always clear. Uh, 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 Jeff Wamsley, who runs the Mothman Museum, uh, wrote a book, uh, uh, Mothman: The Facts Behind the Legend. He uh, talked to a young man that saw it uh, in a saw well saw something like it in the TNT area in the nineties, and I think Small Town Monsters has found a couple people. It, it just it's just not clear that it's the same, exactly the same thing. It seemed like it was sort of a, in, in the, that place in time, it is, was its heyday, you know, and it, it just doesn't seem like it has, uh, uh, people want to uh, dub a lot of uh, winged creatures that are seen, uh, the Mothman, but I think this was kind of uh, unique. Uh, there, was, there was actually an, an event about three years, actually three years to, to today before uh the Mothman, which took place in Kent, England. And some uh, students were coming back from a dance, and uh, they saw this light uh, land behind a grove of trees, and then they saw another light appear, and then it almost seemed to morph into a a, uh, a Mothman-like creature. They said it had no head, it had bat-like wings, and it shuffled along very similar to the Mothman. It did not have uh, red glowing eyes. 
but it, it seemed it was implied that maybe this uh, this light transformed into this creature as something uh, Paul Devereaux uh, calls uh, proto-entities. He has uh, covered a lot of cases where people will see some kind of a, a light or whatever, and the the, uh, the 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 craft or the vehicle, whatever you want to call it, sort of morphs into the entity. And so they're kind of inseparable. But uh, that's the, actually the closest description I've ever heard uh, that was similar to the Mothman of Point Pleasant. Now, the, when these couples were chased, uh, were they were they together or were they separate? Or were they in the same locations? They, they, were, they were in the same car and they... Uh, they they took off down Route 62 and they, they could see it. Uh, they couldn't see it all the time because it was above them, but it, it funneled them into town. Uh, they stopped at a, at a place called Tiny's Restaurant where Linda uh, had worked, and uh, Tiny's actually was the uh, 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 it was a famous sighting of the Mothman that took place later that year or later the next year. Um, uh, overhead, and now it's Village Pizza, so you guys, you can go there to a, a historic uh, Mothman sighting, but uh, she went there to, uh, and told her boss what what that happened, and he suggested they go to the police, so they went right to the police, uh, the police separated them, and they wrote out their, uh, their, their uh, uh, description of what happened. Uh, Jeff Wamsley has those handwritten documents in the Mothman Museum and also put them in his book. So, uh, and they were telling essentially the same story. And another thing I found out recently, um, uh, Jeff Wamsley had, uh, now we, Linda Scarberry is no longer with us, but uh, uh, he was, Jeff was uh, six years old when the bridge collapsed. He was her paper boy. Uh, so, you know, he had, had Mothman witnesses on his street. Well, in, in later years, he started... Uh, doing all the collecting for the museum. And uh, he had, he went out to the, uh, the TNT area and the old North power plant with Linda and she described everything that happened. And uh, uh, at, at some point, not too long ago, a nurse that worked at Pleasant Valley Hospital here uh, came to Jeff and said, you know, that night there were two women that were admitted uh, for to be treated for shock. And so, and now Linda had never said anything to Jeff about that, but he went and he asked her and she said, yes, she and Mary Mallet later that, that night did go to the hospital to be treated for shock. And so that just kind of gives it another layer of believability that something traumatic really happened. Any reports of missing time in those cases? Um, there was a uh, an official, uh, a town official unnamed that Keel reported on where he went out on his porch and he saw the Mothman standing there on his front lawn. And then he went into a trance for about 10 or 15 minutes. So that was essentially missing time. Uh, there were there were other uh, there were other cases of. Uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of close encounters, uh, possible abductions, I guess, but uh, some cases of missing time. But I don't know of any other ones that are directly associated with the Mothman. And then, of course, no abduction uh, cases that we know of either. Well, it, um, well, we don't know. There was a there was a couple that was uh, had missing time, uh, and they were they were parking in a lover's lane. But it's they were never. This is a you know. Uh, uh, Early on, I mean the the big the big missing time uh, case came with Betty and Barney Hill, and that's when people their attention was more focused on that and putting people under regressive hypnosis. But back then, 
uh, they they just didn't do that. But uh, yeah, there were some cases where that uh, possible abductions, uh, but there were some cases of missing time, but just not explored as far you, as I know. Is there an idea of how many uh, people say that they witnessed the Mothman between 66 and 67? And do you think it could have been a case uh, of, of mass hysteria? Uh, there were, Cale uh, talked, I think, about 125 witnesses. Now, there, there, uh, there probably were a lot more. I, I talked to a lady here in town not too long ago, and she said that back in those days, if you experienced something like that, you saw something like that, you just kept your mouth shut. Uh, as it was, uh, the, uh, the two couples that uh, reported this, they were, they were harassed and, and made fun of. Um, I just don't, uh, I don't think it is any way it could be mass hysteria. You had uh, uh, situations where several people saw it. It did seem to leave some footprints uh, uh, near the old North Power Plant. Um, uh, the uh, now, not everybody saw exactly the same thing. There were, you know, in these in these areas, these hot. Okay, uh, hold that thought, Steve Ward, with us. Uh, so the differences in some of these sightings that were being reported by the witnesses—that's where we'll pick up our conversation. Imagine those glowing red eyes looking back at you. Something you're not quite sure what you're dealing with. Into the paranormal will continue. I'm Jeremy Scott. Normal news. NASA's Artemis 1 rocket made its historic first flight to the moon from Florida's Kennedy Space Center in the wee hours of Wednesday morning. Four stage engine start. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. Not even months of delays from technical issues or two hurricanes could stop the most powerful rocket in space. Took a long time coming to get here. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson was among the thousands who stayed up late to experience the rocket launch. The spacecraft, comprising of a mighty space launch system rocket and pioneering Orion capsule, lit up the night sky. Mission manager Mike Serafin says the rocket did its job. Today we got to witness the world's most powerful rocket take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it and it was quite a sight artemis one is without a crew on its 25 day 1.3 million mile journey to the moon and back it will splash down in the pacific ocean on december 11th the next flights will take humans to the moon for the first time in more than a half century i'm george henry paranormal news The story begins when several villagers have close encounters with a semi-human flying creature. This is where all of your Mothman sightings started back in 66, November 66. People began to see this creature as a harbinger of doom, harbinger of doom or an angel of death. We don't fly by the seat of our pants, although that would be quite a sight. You're traveling into the Parabnormal with Jeremy Scott. 
Emphasis on fly tonight is in Mothman. Talking with Steve Ward tonight, and uh, Steve, right before the break, uh, you were starting to, uh, I guess, make the point that not everybody sees the same thing or perceives it the same, right? Right. Uh, there were a couple of guardsmen that saw, they, they described a, a, a kind of a large bird in the tree. It didn't, you know, it's hard to say what they really saw, but uh, it didn't sound exactly like some of the other descriptions of the Mothman. Uh, now, there was an, uh, one witness named Tom Urey. He saw essentially a Thunderbird, a giant bird with about a 10 to 12 foot wingspan flying over his car. He said he was sure it wasn't a condor or whatever. And, uh, you know, he's vehement about that. Uh, so uh, it, this, uh, it does seem like in, in some of these areas you get sort of a a, uh, a sampling of all kinds of different uh, manifestations. You know, there were all kinds of uh, lights, strange lights going overhead all the time. There are a lot of things going on uh, at the same time. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just... Uh, when you get into John Keel, it's very hard to summarize him in a couple paragraphs, but he he wasn't sure that he thought some of these things were paraphysical or just, you know, temporarily uh, uh, there before they would just kind of melt away. He talked about window areas, things popping in and popping out, but he also talked about uh, transmogrifications of energy. He thought that perhaps there was uh, some force or some intelligence that uh, would temporarily manifest some of these these things, that, that we might even co-create some of these things. You know, they, a lot of these things seem to be reflective. Uh, you know, when you look at the uh, the UFO situation and the strange lights in the sky over time, uh, in, in ancient times, you know, they were they were fairy lights. It's, it's sometimes they even thought literally there were witches right Riding on their brooms, carrying the lantern, and that was the light moving in the sky. Uh, later on, you get the the majestic airships, 1897, which are very much like dirigibles or whatever, but in, in advance of any technology we had. Then you get the the Foo Fighters, the strange lights that follow planes uh, in World War II. Uh, it's it's like these things were always a little bit ahead of us, and he he thought that uh, he talked about something called paranormal mimicry. Um, and he uh, he used a term uh, ultra terrestrial. Uh, it was a term he borrowed from Ivan Sanderson. Yeah, he and Ivan Sanderson were friends and colleagues. And of course, Sanderson is probably best known for uh, the the book "The Abominable Snowman: Legend Come to Life." But he wrote a lot of other books on the unknown and UFOs. Well, Keel used it as, like I say, a literary device, and it was just the idea was he thought that perhaps. Uh, some of these things, these manifestations, the lights, the cryptids or whatever, were natural conditions of the planet, but operated under certain principles that we just didn't quite understand. Absolutely. A lot of this is still not understood. Uh, that's why it's important to have programs like this and uh, programs like uh, Steve's and others uh, in order to get this information out. Johnny Cobb, you're on the air. Hey, Jeremy and Steve. Um, this is actually the first time that I've actually spoken with Steve directly. We've been Facebook friends for about a year. Right. And, uh, feel like I already know him like, you know, like a best friend. Well, thanks Johnny. I really appreciate it. But, uh, I'm glad he, he hooked up with you, Jeremy. I mean, awesome. I have a question for you, Steve. Sure. Are there any Mothman events happening during the course of the year, uh, in, um, in Point Pleasant? Well, yes, there's a, a Mothman Festival, which is an absolute blast every third weekend in September. And uh, 
it's uh you know it's got everything it's got uh food t-shirts uh the the mothman museum is extremely well done and of course the majestic mothman statue a very stylized representation of the mothman is there as well but i have to tell people that uh what you want to do is get your ticket Saturday morning to go on the hayride because we take people into the dreaded TNT area where the Mothman was seen on tours in the dead of night. And it's just a really, really good time. That sounds great. Hey, I got a curveball to throw to you. I'm ready. Everybody across the country wants to know, what does Steve Ward have for breakfast this morning? And also, Jeremy, what did you have for breakfast? <laughs> I, I, I'm in the South now, so I had biscuits and gravy. Oh. Is that all? Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Black coffee. I've that, had that's three running... cups of uh, hot chocolate myself so far, but I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> qualify what I had to eat earlier as breakfast. <laughs> oh, man, that's hilarious. <laughs> Listen, I know you have other callers. It's been great talking to both of you, and have a great night, man. Okay, so, nice so, talking to you, Johnny. Appreciate that, Johnny. And by the way, uh, the phone number, 503-506-0396. That's 503-506-0396. And that works inside or outside North America. You can also just uh, go to the website, click on the Skype button, or type us in at ITP51 for Into the Paranormal, and you could get into the program that way as well. So how popular are... Uh, reports of Mothman and, say, UFO sightings, Steve? Um, well, they, they coincided, uh, at least in that time period. And, uh, you know, you could uh, – these these lights were going over all the time. Uh, John Keel uh, teamed up with Mary Heyer, uh, who was the uh, local reporter there. Uh, she wrote a, a column called Where the Waters Mingle because the Ohio and the Kanawha come together there. She was the one that would report on Mothman sightings, UFOs, and and men in black encounters and so forth. And uh, they would uh, – the TNT area got crazy. Uh, uh, people were out there. Cars were lined up. Uh, people were there with their shotguns and bow and arrows. They were going to bag themselves a Mothman, right? Well, so uh, Keel – uh, and some of his uh, colleagues, they went uh, down south of there to Gallopless Ferry. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you get way off in the hollers down there. And you can imagine what it was like over 50 years ago. And they, he found a particular hill where they would sit there. And every night they would have these strange lights coming overhead that were not conventional aircraft. Uh, Keel even saw a, uh, had some close-up sightings of some of these things. So it, uh, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not convinced that Mothman was some kind of an extraterrestrial, but, uh, you know, there, there's other, uh, if you look at the, the work of Stan Gordon, he wrote a book called Silent Invasion. He chronicled the strange events in 73, 74 in southwest Pennsylvania. Well, there were, were a wave of really bizarre Bigfoot reports uh, along in conjunction with uh, which seemed to be landed UFOs or lights in the sky. So whatever was going on there, uh, it might be probably too simplistic to say that the aliens landed and let their pet Bigfoot out to stretch their legs, uh, but they, these things seem to to parallel. They coincide, and uh, that's what uh, what was going on in uh, in Point Pleasant. There were there were uh, uh, like be uh, bedroom invaders, uh, apparitions. Uh, there were just, you know, poltergeist phenomena, um, just many, many strange things were going on at that time in Point Pleasant and, and the Ohio Valley. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, I mean, about the poltergeist phenomena. That was uh, something that 
pe- what people reported in their homes after they had seen, you know, something? Like yes. Uh, yeah, Franzen found that virtually all the uh, uh, witnesses he interviewed, not quite all of them, but most of them had, yeah, would have some kind of a outbreak for a couple of weeks of poltergeist phenomena. Now, you know, you wonder what, what what's the cause of that? I mean, and if that's this, like this what? Thing, Objects moving, yes, uh, levitating, right. uh, that sort of thing for the most part? Yes, for the most part. I, I look at uh, at Point Pleasant as one of these uh, high strangeness areas. Uh, like the, you know, we've heard of the Skinwalker Ranch and the Bridgewater Triangle and Marley Woods. And there's just so many areas where activity, different types of activity all seem to occur in the same place. And that's, uh, to me, I think that 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 might be key to understanding or at least, you know, getting a little bit down the road to understanding what's going on. You know, why is it that this particular area, you know, there was a uh, a woman that Keel uh, interviewed across the river in Gallipolis. She lived on a farm. They were seeing uh, these large uh almost boxcar-like craft or UFOs uh, flying over her property. She had cattle mutilations there. Uh, she had classic haunting phenomena in her house. And we'd see apparitions walk through walls and, and just disappear. Uh, but she and she also had a uh, an encounter similar to the in, infamous Indrid Cold, which in all this stuff, the Indrid Cold uh, I- events happened at the same time, actually just a little bit before the Mothman stuff. So uh, this whole area was just a hotbed of different types of paranormal activity. And, you know, it's very difficult to be definitive and say, well, it's all connected somehow. But it, there, do, there do seem, does seem to be patterns in, in these things where they may well be connected. Uh, Men in Black reports, were those something that followed uh, or occurred during that Mothman wave between 66 and 67 or or even after 67? Because it seems like after the bridge collapsed, uh, those reports uh, stopped from at least uh, what I've been able to to find. Uh, It it might be that uh, it seemed like it all pretty much stopped after that but it, it could be that the everybody's attention was, was focused on the tragedy and you know if if, if somebody was uh, saw the mothman or or saw a ufo or maybe even had a, a knock on the door from a man in black it may not have got you know gotten very far everybody was focused on on what had happened uh so the uh the, the men in black uh uh, John Keel used it, uh, the term as a generic term because it doesn't doesn't always mean that uh, it's a somebody in a black suit, black, you know, black fedora, uh, and, and knocking on your door. Uh, Mary Heyer had some uh, really strange characters show up, uh, asking about UFOs and, and and that sort of thing. There, you know, it, it's possible. You know, there there are some uh, people. <laughs> some uh, interesting people that are attracted to the paranormal and some of them might be uh we might consider a little bit off so some of the people that that uh kind of bugged her a bit might have just been people that were had personality problems or slightly disturbed you know it's we uh but uh some of these reports the uh the the men in black seem to be just very odd sort of uh, detached or out of it, uh, driving black Cadillacs with uh, uh, old cars with shiny interiors, and sometimes their dashboards are lit up with lights. You know, there's there's all kinds of lore. Sometimes it's simply a uh, somebody posing as an Air Force officer, but uh, that Air Force officer isn't really 
uh, a, a genuine Air Force officer. Um, you know, even even Stan Gordon ran into that sort of thing in Pennsylvania with uh, Men in Black and Bigfoot reports. So uh, uh, Mary had uh, uh, some just really strange characters show up and uh, ask her about UFOs and what what if somebody told you to stop uh, writing about UFOs and that sort of thing. Uh, John Keel said that a lot of times he he showed up at somebody's house just missing some of these characters by 15 minutes. So. Uh, it's it's another thing very hard to sort through, and you know there's it's I'm sure it's a mixture of some you know if, if somebody uh, sometimes missionaries are dressed up, it might be uh, uh, you know mistaken for men in black, and all they're doing is you know passing the good the good word right, so uh, you know True. you have to be really careful. Are the men in black missionaries? Uh, that's a very yeah, interesting yeah. thing. Uh, do they ride bicycles as well? Because some ride bikes and uh, some drive cars. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, as far as, though, I'm wondering why the reports stopped. If the reports were that Mothman might have had something to do with the bridge collapse, uh, it seems like if people had seen this being in the area, that perhaps it could have what left the area to, I guess, not have so much attention on it, or, you know, people could have, as you said, just been worried about the tragedy. And uh, so what do you think about that? Uh, I'm not sure at the, uh, I I, I tend to think of the Mothman as something temporal. I I, I think it kind of, it may have just sort of phased out or melted away or, or ran out of whatever, energy would, would drove it um so uh there really you know there just wasn't really much to report after okay, that so do you think that people were actually seeing something or do you think that this was uh some sort of uh part of their imagination no i i think that uh people were really seeing something now now, when when people were were, were you know filing into the TNT area in the night, I'm sure that uh, some people saw a tree the wrong way, maybe a a, a, a heron or a, a big owl, and their, their imaginations went wild. I mean, there's there's no no question that uh, people got a little bit tanked up, and there was probably some <clears throat> somebody just seeing shadows and getting a little freaked out. But but some of these other uh, uh, reports are are pretty clear. Uh, that they they saw something. There was the there was Marcella Bennett. She and her brother went out to the TNT area. There was a, a one of their friends lived out there. They were going to go tap on the window and and try to, try to scare them because they'd heard about the Mothman. And uh, they were walking back to the car, and this thing rose up off the ground. I heard I'd not talked to Marcella Bennett. She we lost her a few years ago, but I've heard long form interviews with her. She actually dropped her infant child and, and collapsed, and then she grabbed her, her, her child was all right. She grabbed her and they ran to the house, but this thing rose up off the ground. And, uh, and then when they were in the house, it walked back and forth across the porch. And there were several people that experienced this. So, uh, there's no question there was a, a, a reality to this, that, that something really happened. So did, did, uh, the work of, of John Keel and, and maybe perhaps others lead you towards, uh, the route of a more, uh, paranormal explanation to this all? Absolutely. I started out thinking, uh, you know, uh, being an ET kind of guy. And uh, but then I read uh, uh, UFOs Operation Trojan Horse. That's sort of uh, his uh, grand opus. And that's where he first really 
you know, ties uh, things together, very much like Charles Fort did. He, John Keel considered himself a Fortian. He, he, he hated to be called a ufologist. But uh, yes, it was, it was that. And then I, I followed that up with Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, where he discusses, uh, you know, traditions of folklore being very similar to some modern-day UFO experiences. So those, those two guys, uh, John Keel, I think, was uh, probably a century ahead of everybody in his, uh, his views and so forth. Very, very uh, worthwhile reading just about anything by John Keel. So what went on in your backyard in March of 66, which would have been about eight months uh, before uh, the, the Mothman wave later on that year? Well, figuratively, I was—I grew up in the Detroit area, and uh, these sightings were seen in uh, Hillsdale, Ann Arbor, uh, and uh, Dexter. Uh, the uh, uh, Dr. Heineck, Dr. J. Allen Heineck, was sent from the Air Force. He—he he was still attached to Project Blue Book at the time, and uh, so—and he had begun to believe that there was some reality to this, but he still had to kind of straddle the fence because he was. Uh, you know, uh, still tied to the Air Force and their line. Uh, but uh, there were there were there was a landing on the Frank Manor farm in Dexter. Uh, a lot of police officers saw these things going overhead. They were they were in the news. It was uh, it was pretty cool for a kid, you know, experiencing all this right in Michigan. And that was a time when uh, Dr. Heineck gave a live press conference. He suggested that some of the sightings were swamp gas. And so, of course, the swamp gas jokes have reverberated for decades, and the newspaper reporter had their answer to the UFO problem. They were swamp gas. Yeah, it's always swamp gas or weather balloons. Uh, right. Those, those seem to be... So how many sightings are we talking about during uh, throughout the month there? Oh, gee, I, I, I don't recall really, but dozens. And uh, they... Uh, uh, there was some uh, very close sightings and uh, nothing in the way of abductions that I recall, but uh, it was uh, it's pretty active for the month of March. And uh, uh, it was very it was uh, just kind of a fun time. As you mentioned, it was John Keel who talked about those window areas. And so right. I'm interesting, interested in what your perception of that is. Uh, we may call those the gray areas. Uh, we may call those portals. So, uh, what do you think that he was referring to there? Well, he was uh, he, he realized he recognized that in certain areas, uh, paranormal activity would occur uh, over you know sometimes hundreds of years. Uh, some of the uh, areas where you have uh, encounters with the little people and missing time with the little people are the same areas where people uh, in modern day talk about aliens and abduction. Um, there was a, a case in in Dubbed Wales uh, in in seventy seven where the uh, uh, the uh, uh, there was a farm uh, the uh, oh the Coombs family was uh, taking care of the Ripperston farm and there was just a wave of there were seven foot uh, uh, tall silver suited giants uh, strange lights uh, all kinds of uh, activity but before that they were living in a caravan a trailer near the ocean and they were experiencing uh, poltergeist in their in their trailer and uh they would look through the window and they would see a apparition of the virgin mary and then at, at 10 o'clock every night and then and she was dressed in white carrying a rosary she would morph into an image of jesus several hundred people saw this and, and it just sort of faded out and so in that same general area you then you had a wave of uh 
of, of what seemed to be E.T., although there were many overtones uh, that were connected with folklore and the uh, these uh, these beings and these incidents. So uh, Keel also noticed that uh, you know very few UFOs and even the the entities, the ufonauts, very few of them are identical. You get the general. Uh, general scope where you know general shapes uh, the general type of being maybe a giant maybe somebody three foot tall but when you get down to specifics there's very seldom they're actually the same so he was trying to come to grips with you know where these things are coming from why is there such a variety maybe maybe we're a grand central station here of just hundreds of different types of beings if we're out of time Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's Steve Ward, and we will continue with more of our program, Glowing Red, as in the eyes of the Mothman. On Into the Paranormal, I'm Jeremy Scott. Want to chat with like-minded thinkers? Join Into the Paranormal Facebook group. It'll blow your mind. Paranormal with Jeremy Scott. Somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. It was today in 1966 that the first newspaper reports about a phenomenon known as Mothman was reported. And since then, the legend still lives. There's a museum, there's a festival. There's television shows, there's books, there's even people who are saying they're still seeing these creatures, whatever these are, these flying humanoid-like creatures with these glowing red eyes. I'm Jeremy Scott, and as we talk about, you know, Mothman, turns out there are actually reports of a similar creature around Lake Michigan. And those stories have come to light thanks to the work of a dedicated team of investigators who spent about two years digging into dozens of reports. And among them is my guest next, Tobias Wayland, who has been actively investigating the unusual for over a decade. He's the head writer and editor for the Singular Fortean Society. He and his wife, uh, Emily, they've been involved with the investigation of the Lake Michigan Mothman since about 2017 and have published a book chronicling the experience. It's called The Lake Michigan Mothman, High Strangeness in the Midwest. And Tobias is here with us on the program. Hi, how are you? Hey, I'm, I'm doing very well, Jeremy. As far as the Mothman creature, you had obviously heard about the the stories, I'm guessing, about Point Pleasant west virginia first and then and then when did you start hearing about the other ones uh, the ones that you write about in the lake michigan mothman 
yeah. So, you know, like you said, I, I had definitely uh, uh, been familiar with the the Point Pleasant Mothman sightings. You know, I, I sort of grew up reading John Keel and uh, the, the Lake Michigan didn't we all? Mothman <laughs> stuff. Yeah, right, right. Um, the, the Lake Michigan stuff, uh, happened for me in the, the spring of, of 2017. So at that time I was writing news articles for the, the singular 40 and society website. And I had seen this trio of, of sightings come through, uh, MUFON, that's the mutual UFO network. And, uh, they, they each described this, uh, sort of winged creature in, uh, different parts of Chicago. Um, and I thought that was unusual because you don't often get any kind of monster reports from that kind of of urban area. You know, normally you would expect at most, uh, you know, for, for something like that to be reported in a, a small town somewhere. And so, you know, that uh, that uh, initially piqued my, my interest. Now, there wasn't a lot of investigation that went into those sightings, unfortunately. You know, I, I spoke to the, the Illinois state director for MUFON, Sam Maranto, uh, later on in the investigation and and they weren't really able to to follow up on on those sightings and so at at the the time you know i just sort of wrote a, a short article uh, uh about them and uh, and published it and I, I didn't really expect it to go anywhere frankly i thought this would be you know one of those just weird one-off uh, uh sightings or or you know spate of of sightings um and that would be the the end of it you know we wouldn't hear anything else going forward but obviously that's not what happened uh you know it wasn't very long after that that um you know i noticed sightings sort of coming in left right and center and they were you know they were largely coming into phantoms and monsters you know lon strickler over there and uh and to manuel navret over at a ufo clearinghouse and um you know at at some point after interviewing both of them separately, because, you know, as they began to come in more and more, I, I wanted to continue our, our coverage of it. Um, they uh, they asked me if I wouldn't, you know, mind joining them and, and helping to uh, investigate these sightings. Because, you know, Emily and I don't live too far from Chicago. We're in southern Wisconsin. So, you know, most of these sighting uh, locations are, are within uh, two hours of us or, or often less. And, uh, and yeah, so next thing you know, uh, we're, we're getting sightings of, uh, our, our own reported directly to the singular 40 in society. You know, I've got friends, uh, in, in other organizations, uh, you know, other cryptid researchers and, and UFO researchers and stuff who are referring sightings to us. And, and the whole thing just snowballed really. Because Lake Michigan covers several states, but the, the reports that you've uncovered are primarily around, uh, the Chicago area. Um, I would say that um, more than half are are in the the Chicagoland area. Um, there are a decent amount in uh, Wisconsin, mostly southern Wisconsin, southeastern Wisconsin, and in Indiana. Uh, and the the ones in Indiana uh, tend to be sort of around the. Um, the Prairie Creek Reservoir, where if people aren't familiar with that area, uh, that's uh, just south of Muncie, I believe. So sort of between that and, uh, and, and Gary, you know, so sort of between, um, you know, uh, Muncie and then like the, the, uh, the border with Illinois uh, would be the, the majority of the, the uh, Indiana sightings. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say that uh, at more sightings have come from the Chicagoland area 
than probably any, well, certainly uh, more than, than anywhere else. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's more activity in, in that area. Um, you know, I would say that certainly there are more misidentifications um, that have come out of uh, that, that particular area. And, uh, and, and also certainly there are more sightings that, uh, that weren't really able to be followed up on that, that came out of Chicago. So that combined with uh, the, the fact that when you're looking at an area with that kind of population density, you know, even if this was uh, a, a phenomenon spread evenly throughout this geographic area, you would still get the most reports from Chicago because it's just more densely populated than, than any other uh, specific geographic area. Uh, not as many reports in, in the Michigan area proper as you, uh, as the no. other States. Yeah. And I, I, I always wondered about that. Um, and I, I, I don't know why I, I think there's only been maybe two or three and, um, and it could be a combination of, uh, um, well, you know, maybe people aren't seeing things. Maybe people aren't reporting things. Maybe they don't know where to uh, report something if they do see it. Um, you know, I, our, our reach is, is limited. Uh, and so if people don't know where to report something like that, um, then unfortunately we, we don't hear about it. And, and I think about that a lot specifically because quite often when I will speak with witnesses, they have this sort of common narrative, you know, like their, their experience is often that um, they will see this impossible thing. They'll see this winged humanoid, right? And then um, it's, it's powerful. It's an, an impactful experience in their lives and they want to talk about it. Uh, they, you know, they, they just want somebody to, to listen to them. And so they will go to a loved one, you know, it could be a close friend or a spouse or a sibling or a parent or something, right? Somebody they think they can trust and they will tell them about their experience. And more often than not, they will get laughed at and, uh, and then they don't talk about it. Uh, they don't talk about it again until they find somebody like me who investigates this kind of stuff and they feel comfortable enough knowing that I, I will take them seriously. Um, and so I, I think that there is an aspect of, of this um, where it is, it's, it's just underreported. And so because we don't have necessarily the same presence in Michigan uh, right now that we do, you in Wisconsin or Illinois or even Indiana, um, it's possible that we're just not getting uh, any uh, reports that that you know would normally be coming out of that area. Yeah, there's not uh, a tracking service uh, for Mothman reports like there is for UFOs, at least to my knowledge. Right. Maybe there should be. I th- I think that would be great. Um, now, when you look at some of the uh, the the tracking services for for UFO specifically, you know, like MUFON obviously relies on hundreds of, of volunteers to to make that work, um, or even like the the National uh, UFO Reporting Center. Um, you know, I, I, that obviously is is run by you know just one person, but. Um, it also doesn't involve the level of um, investigation, I think, that, that people would uh, would be looking for in that situation. But either one would be an improvement probably over not uh, receiving some of these uh, uh, reports that, that, that we would otherwise like to receive. You know, um, we have actually uh, got 
reports, though, from, you know, a fairly um, a widespread geographic area, right? So, you know, I've, I've got reports from as far away as Texas or, or even California uh, for, for wing tumoroid sightings. Actually, even out on the, the East Coast, you know, um, boy, uh, I've got uh, reports from, uh, uh, oh, boy, uh, where was it? Uh, Maryland, I think, was probably the furthest east um you know not counting like uh 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 west virginia and, and pennsylvania and 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 uh in those areas which i think generate more sightings overall but you know there i i guess what i'm getting at is you know there these reports are fairly widespread and and they are being reported um at, at least somewhat and so you know while I would love to have some some actual you know uh, database like that to uh, compile all of the the data um, even more than we've already done. Like I've created a timeline of sightings. I know Lon has this map that that he's 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 uh, put together. I, I guess I don't know that something like uh, New Fork, for instance, um, would be any better than what we have now, just because. Um, I, I don't know how that would reach a wider audience, and I think that's really uh, the the crux of the the issue here is is how do we reach more people to let them know that we're out there uh, for them to report their their sighting. So, how does one report their sightings uh, to your group, uh, Tobias? Oh, sure. So, you know, people will will get. Uh, they will get a hold of us in a variety of uh, of, of ways. Um, you know, you can contact us directly through our website at singularfortia.com. There's a, a contact link that's right on the homepage there. Um, you know, I've had people reach out uh, through social media. I'm fairly uh, available, um, you know, in, in terms of, of direct messages and, and, and things like that. Um, and so probably the, the, the most common way would be for somebody to uh, email us through our uh, website. Um, and, you know, once that happens, you know, I'll try to, to follow up with them by phone. Um, oftentimes people are comfortable doing that. And, and sometimes they're, they're not, which is uh, unfortunate. But, uh, but yeah, for anybody who actually, you know, say might be listening and, and would like to uh, report a sighting themselves, uh, I would encourage them to go to uh, singular40n.com and just reach out through the the uh, contact link on there and uh, shoot us an uh, email and, uh, and, and we could just go from there. What are the typical descriptions of this beast, uh, if we're going to call it that, known as Mothman? Sure. So often in the reports that i would say have the potential to be paranormal in some way uh, the attributes most commonly described by witnesses will uh, be things like um, an enormous size so uh, often people will uh, describe the height of this thing as you know between six to eight feet tall they will uh, describe its its wingspan as 12 to, to 15 feet wide. Um, uh, usually it has uh, in, in all black or dark gray coloration, a consistent coloration. Um, they will talk about, uh, you know, glowing red eyes often. Uh, there will also sometimes be... Uh, seemingly uh, paranormal uh, qualities to the encounter as well. So 
you know, you'll, you'll have people describe this feeling of being hypnotized or, or, um, you know, feeling as though this creature is, is sort of able to, to gaze into their soul and, and, and they'll feel sort of, sort of pinned down by, by that gaze. Um, and beyond that, you know, you've, you've got, uh, a, a variety of, of, um, somewhat less common, uh, qualities as well. You know, um, some people, although not often have, uh, described, um, a separate, a separate, uh, a set of arms from its wings. Now, most commonly people will, will talk about it just having wings and, 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 uh, legs. Um, boy, what are some of the other more, uh, uncommon attributes? Um, a loud screech, uh, sometimes will be, reported by witnesses. Um, and then, you know, as far as its movement, now uh, a lot of people will describe it it flying without flapping its wings. Uh, sometimes people will describe it as taking off from the, the ground without flapping its its wings. Um, although that's not um, that's not a, a certainty. You know, there are there are uh, a decent number of witnesses who who do talk uh, who do talk about whatever they saw having having flapped its its wings to to take off. Although certainly you know something with wings that manages to to take off from the the ground without flapping them is uh, is very unusual. Absolutely, and we talked about that earlier with a guest in our first hour. Uh, the ability uh, for something like that to do that, if you know, with a wingspan such as what is being described by the witnesses, we would expect that it wouldn't have the ability to actually lift itself and fly away. So that would bring in uh, some sort of, uh, you know, other element, a supernatural element. Oh, certainly. Um, I I don't think that if there is something unexplained, or I guess rather um, something that, if there is something about these sightings, that uh, that doesn't fit within um, you know the the mainstream scientific paradigm. Um, you know, I don't think that it uh, it represents an undiscovered biological species, at least not one that uh, operates um, in in a way that we understand or or would even understand to be possible. Um, you know, and so you have to begin to to consider, um, you know, certain uh, supernatural or, or paranormal uh, uh, elements that 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 might be present. You know, because when you look at at just the the structure of this thing, as it's described, um, you know, something roughly man sized uh, with only a twelve or or fifteen foot wingspan shouldn't be able to fly at all. I mean, because it's it's not. Uh, normally depicted as as being especially thin or or frail um and so you know um it it just it it doesn't it doesn't seem possible if if you think it or uh, if if you think about some of the the larger species of of birds you know um yeah, most of their height comes from legs and then they have you know relatively small torsos and uh, and of course hollow bones and uh, and they don't look anything 
like uh, a, a, a humanoid. They don't have our our large abdomens and our, our large you know limbs and everything and and all of our muscle mass and and every everything that 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 sort of goes along with the the humanoid uh, description given of this thing and so there just doesn't seem to be any good uh, um, you know scientific explanation for how this thing should be able to fly at least under um, our, our current uh, understanding or or uh, consensus uh, surrounding you know biology and 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 uh, physics as we currently understand them, what would actually make it humanoid uh, in its appearance? Uh, do people describe certain things that give it that perception? Uh, yeah, certainly. So um, when people talk about this, uh, you know, it's first of all, it can be very difficult for a witness to fully describe what they've seen because it's so far outside of their normal experience. And, and so they, they, they often struggle and they'll try to relate it to, to something else, like maybe something in media, you know, some people will, will liken the, uh, the, the thing that they've seen to say like the, the monster from Jeepers Creepers or something similar, something to, to some sort of point of reference that they can sort of cling to. Um, because otherwise, you know, people just just struggle to to find the vocabulary to to talk about it. But yeah, generally speaking, people will uh, describe it themselves as as being humanoid, and so they'll they'll talk about it, you know, basically having the torso and and legs of a a man, um, only with these uh, huge wings, um, often the head is uh is relatively uh close to the shoulders they don't talk about a, a neck or anything um and so you've sort of got this um this this uh sort of thick humanoid creature with this you know necklace head attached to its shoulders with these weird red eyes um but yeah the 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 humanoid aspects really mostly come from the uh the 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 torso and legs that are are most often uh uh described as being human like or or related or compared to uh the the human body by witnesses but for the most part the glowing red eyes are a fairly common in all of these or if not all of these reports yeah, I mean it, it. It is fairly common. Uh, it certainly does not exist in every report, um, and I, I don't have a, a percentage of reports in front of me um, or anything like that. I would say that. Um, I, I guess I should say that I, I'm confident in saying that it is uh, fairly common, at least in those reports that I consider to. Uh, have the highest probability of, of potentially representing something paranormal. Um, you know, it's not uh, uh, 100%, uh, you know, um, again, there there are uh, outliers. I think some people have reported uh, very similar colors, like maybe orange, um, although at least one person, I think, reported green eyes. So, No matter what the color, it's equally as creepy, and we'll continue with my guest, Tobias Wayland, author of The Lake Michigan Mothman. Glowing red on Into the Paranormal continues right after this.
Paranormal News. The sun continues to put on a show. An unexpected solar flare smashed into Earth on November 6th, causing radio blackouts in Australia and New Zealand. It was accompanied by a coronal mass ejection that did not hit Earth. The medium-strength M5-class solar flare was recorded by NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory as it erupted from sunspot AR-3141. It has since grown and now has the energy of the largest of flares, the X-class variety. This one took scientists by surprise, but it's not the first time. Nearly twice as many sunspots as those predicted by NOAA have occurred during the current solar cycle. Meanwhile, the solar storms are being captured by spacecraft. NASA's MAVEN mission witnessed two ultraviolet aurora simultaneously in late August, including a CME that produced one of the brightest solar energetic particle events the spacecraft has observed while orbiting Mars these past eight years. And the European Space Agency's solar orbiter made its closest flyby yet, coming within less than a third of the orbit of the Earth around the sun last month. The large amount of data it captured enabled a movie of the sun's corona to be produced. I'm George Henry, Paranormal News. what is known to this day as the deadliest bridge collapse in U.S. history. Leading up to that collapse, a series of sightings of a large bird-like creature... People said that they saw Mothman flying across the bridge before it collapsed. The creature is said to be the size of an adult male with large gray wings and red glowing eyes that peer out from a hunched and bird-like head. The Gettysburg Times reported that in just three days after the original encounter, eight additional sightings took place. We couldn't believe what we really saw. What we really saw. What's really the truth? Into the paranormal, separating fact from fiction. I'm Jeremy Scott with Tobias Whalen tonight. Our conversation glowing red. As in those glowing red eyes, something humanoid with a necklace head and a human-like torso and legs. Not always red eyes, sometimes orange or green eyes, but nonetheless, as I said, equally creepy. So Tobias, tell us about some of the reports that you uh, and your team uh, uncovered and about the witnesses. Yeah, definitely. So I guess um, one of the things that I'd like to to emphasize uh, in particular is that because there are so many different uh, witness reports that we've received is the, the common denominator amongst all witnesses with whom I have spoken is that they are um, really what you would consider absolutely normal people under any other circumstance. Um, And I I cannot stress this uh, enough, really. I mean, these are people who could be your, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, Um, you know, they could, they could go to your church. Um, You wouldn't know them. Just by looking at them, you wouldn't know. Like you, you, you wouldn't know it by by just talking to them, a uh, normal conversation. Um, 
And that's something that has really uh, struck me uh, when when it comes to to dealing with this particular investigation is just how little uh, most of the the witnesses involved um, were interested in in anything like this, any anything weird in in, in general, frankly. Um, and so they often are um, very scared. You know the the experience itself is is often frightening um the the creature uh whatever they're they're seeing um is 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 very frightening as as though it sort of gives off this this aura of fear or is you know intentionally frightening people for for some reason and then on top of that there is this uh this stigma this this social stigma that that they have to uh, deal with, you know, um, that they are concerned about naturally because they don't want to be ridiculed for their experience, you know, uh, many of whom, again, uh, you know, had the the common experience that I, I described before of, of being laughed at when when trying to, to confide in, in people that they trust. So that's definitely something that stood out to me um, regarding these uh, in investigations that we've done now there are some in particular that i i i think are, are very good cases and often um they are uh, accentuated by by that experience um uh case in point uh woodstock illinois uh this was back in um i believe 2018 i want to say um and uh there was a report that they came out of this uh, small town in, in Illinois and um, it was a man driving alone and uh, he had gone out for some just perfectly normal errands, just, just this, this banal errand um, uh, headed out to Walgreens to, to pick up milk of, of all things. And, uh, and so, you know, it was February and I believe it was uh, after 8 p.m. or so. And so it was dark out. You know, it's it's northern Illinois. Uh, you know, the wintertime, it gets dark very early. And so, um, you know, he has headlights on and he's, he's driving home. And he's driving past the Dewfield Pond Conservation Area, uh, which is just a, a little natural, uh, like, wetlands area. Uh, it's like a wooded wetland um, that's that's in Woodstock. And uh, it's normally closed uh, this this time of year. Um, at, at least the the drive-in area is closed, and so he's he's headed past the uh, the entrance for that. Uh, and um, as he gets up to it, he sees in his headlights this creature walking across the road in in front of him, and he described it as uh, this hulking sort of hairy uh humanoid figure with these large leathery wings and uh and he sees it for several seconds or so as it crosses the the road in front of him and you know once it's out of his his headlights he he quickly loses track of it although uh you know looking at where the sighting was uh we were able to uh determine that the direction it was going would have taken it into the uh, county fairgrounds just on, on the other side of the, the road across from this thing, uh, from this, this conservation area. And, um, and that sighting itself 
isn't necessarily the most sensational, you know, um, but it was one of the most honest, I think, that I've I've ever heard because, you know, this uh, this sighting was was passed on to me by by Lon, um, you know, who uh, who thought that maybe Emily and I should should go down there if we can and 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 work with these people, and so he put me in contact with this witness who I I, I won't name um, because he and and his wife both asked uh, asked to remain anonymous um and i respect that you know as long as i know who somebody is that's that's sort of my standard you know if if i can verify somebody's identity then i don't feel like if they are concerned with what this might do to their personal life this story getting out with their name attached to it i don't feel like i uh i i need to share their name with with anybody else but anyway so lon put me in contact with this man and uh, I, I spoke to him, and uh, and over the phone, immediately I could tell that uh, he was agitated uh, about his his sighting, and you know there was a level of distrust. I think where he was very concerned that um, you know that that this could have a negative effect on on his life. But I, I talked to him for for some time, and. Uh, and he agreed that uh, Emily and I should go ahead and and, and go down there. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, and, uh, and and meet him and meet his wife and and uh, and, and talk to him in person. And so we we scheduled a, a visit and uh, and went down there. And uh, you know, I spoke to him in person. I spoke to his wife in person. They were very very nice. Um, they uh, they took us out to the the sighting area. And and showed us around. Um, you know, we were able to see exactly where where everything happened. And um, it's one thing to hear about, you know, this kind of uh, experience uh, from somebody like me talking about it on a, a radio show or a podcast or writing about it in articles or, or books. But when you're face to face with uh, a, another human being, and and you can see the effect that these experiences have on them, regardless of what you think is behind it, it's powerful. And, uh, and that was my experience speaking with, with this man and, and his wife. He had been through something. He had encountered something, and he couldn't explain it, and he was struggling to explain it, and he was struggling with the conflict that arose out of the juxtaposition between this impossible experience and his otherwise uh, successful pro- professional career and life that he needed to protect from this kind of story because the last thing he needed was to be attached to something like that. And so that, to me, lends this credibility, this this amazing credibility, frankly, to the experience where I can't necessarily say what it was, but what I can say with total confidence is that this this person experienced something outside of their understanding of of reality, and it was it was impactful, and it it uh, it it stayed with them, and um, and that means something. You know, and so that's one where I think Emily and I both, because we we uh, both get asked this 
fairly often, you know, when when uh, we are asked uh, what some of our favorite reports or, you know, what, what, what we think some of the best reports are, that Woodstock one is always very close to the, the, the top of my list. And, but you and had, that's, that's more, you oh, had uh, other reports as well. Uh, how many other reports from the area? Oh boy, that is a, a good question. Now there's been, uh, if you, if you mean Woodstock specifically, um, I believe three other reports came out of Woodstock. Um, let's see. So after this gentleman's sighting, uh, we received another sighting, which was weird um, in that uh, it was uh, via email. Like we were contacted via email. And, you know, I was never able to, to uh, uh, interview that witness. Um, he said that he was outside the uh, Jewel Osco at... Oh boy, I'm trying to remember. I, it was very, very early in the morning. I want to say one or two a.m. and uh, and he saw this thing in the fairgrounds, which is just across the, the the parking lot. There's a there's the parking lot, then a fence, and then the fairgrounds are on the where are uh, on the the other side of that. And so he said he saw this thing that basically matched the the description of of this first witness. Um, in the the fairgrounds and said that it charged the fence and and uh, that he was terrified and so he he called nine one one and you know this had had come after that uh, initial report and so I was skeptical somewhat just given the actual report but you know I I, I went ahead and I I tried to to interview this this witness and I wasn't able to to get a hold of him. Um, to to interview him, but he did say that he called nine one one, and so um, you know if somebody calls nine one one, there's going to be some kind of report. There will be some kind of a paper trail, and so I uh, I contacted the uh, local police department. They referred me to the sheriff's department because uh, that uh, that's the the uh, jurisdiction down there uh, Woods. Stock falls within the the sheriff's department's jurisdiction, and um, and sure enough, uh, they had they didn't have an official report that that was filed because there's no crime committed or anything really. Um, they had an incident detail report uh, resulting from the nine one one call and the sheriff's deputy uh, who responded to that, <clears throat> and so. You know, uh, yeah, I wasn't able to to interview this witness, but I know for a fact that uh, that somebody called nine one one and reported exactly what this guy said that uh, that he had uh, seen, and so that was very interesting. And then uh, there was um, another report from that area, um, which I really didn't have much contact with this person. I, I think they contacted Lon. And uh, and she wanted to be anonymous, and there wasn't a ton of follow-up, but she had, again, said that she had seen something very similar to the, the first witness with this thing walking, in, you know, uh, just across the road in front of her car. And then there was another witness that I did speak to directly, um, and she didn't see anything, but she wanted to report that she had heard what she described as as this strange demonic growling outside of her house, um, you know, it was the middle of the night, and uh, she's home alone, of course, and so um, she, yeah, she said she heard this this weird demonic growling, and she didn't know that it was 
necessarily associated with anything else anybody had been seeing, but, you know, she had seen uh, one of, of my articles and, uh, and so she thought that, Hey, you know, there's no harm in reaching out and, and at least telling me about it. And I'm, I'm glad she did. I, I really truly appreciate anyone who, uh, who contacts me to report anything, you know, be it UFOs, cryptids, ghosts, whatever, because we, we, we cover all of it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that was it out of, out of Woodstock. Now, if we're talking about the uh, sort of sum total of the investigation, um, you know, uh, uh, counting all states uh, in, involved surrounding Lake Michigan, boy, we've got to be at 150 uh, total sightings um, so far. Now, there is a, there is an asterisk there, and and I, I want people to understand that, yeah, that's a lot of sightings, but at, at the same time, You've got to judge each sighting on its its own merits. Um, you know, probably last count by me, um, just under half of the sightings could be misidentifications. Um, that that actually might be less now. I, I haven't really gone back and, and retotaled all of that uh, because I do have a sort of classification system that I, I like to use where all tag sightings, you know, um, that are most likely to be uh, a, a misidentification of something like a, a large bird, um, and then you know tag sightings that uh, that are are more likely to have a, a paranormal explanation if uh, you um, assume that the the witness is uh, is relating their experience authentically. Um, you know, also some of the sightings have had more or less follow-up uh you know some of the sightings uh we've really been able to to uh speak to the the witnesses and they've been very cooperative and uh and those have been great other sightings um not so much and so i think that um unfortunately when you have limited contact with the witness that does affect the credibility of the sighting overall um, because we need to be able to to verify uh, certain details. Because if if I were to go to someone and say, "Well, we got this sighting, and you know, it was emailed to us, and um, you know, I, I didn't have any follow up with the uh, person, so I wasn't able to ask any questions, and so I don't necessarily know all of the details, but this is what they said they saw," and 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 that person turned to me and said, "Well, okay, I don't believe any of that." Um, what am I supposed to tell to them? Because I don't have, I, I don't have a very strong position from which to argue at that point. You know, if they, if they choose not to believe it or, or, or really choose not to believe in its credibility, I can't fault them for that. I, I, I really can't. Um, and so, you know, there are some sightings like that where, Hey, um, if you want to choose to uh, believe in in that sighting or believe in its credibility, great. If you choose not to, that's fine too, um, because it's not necessarily coming from a, a, a place of, of of strong evidence. But you know, that's that's just something that I, I want people to to understand when they're they're looking at this investigation. Is that again? They've really got to to judge each sighting. Um, by its 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 individual 
credibility. And some of them are, are fantastically credible. I mean, um, when I did um, the on the trail of the Lake Michigan Mothman with uh, small town monsters, that, that uh, documentary, we had a couple of witnesses that, that I had worked with who were willing to get in front of the, the camera and, and talk about what, happen to, to to them you know and like these people aren't paid they aren't getting anything out of it other than the cathartic release of being able to to talk about their experience in a supportive environment where nobody's going to make fun of them and you know um, a lot of them or at least like these these witnesses or or any of the witnesses who have gone on the the uh, record and there have been several at least um you know, they, they have this hope, I think, that um, that their experience will encourage other people to come forward. And that's how strongly they feel about their experience, where they're willing to put themselves out there um, to encourage other people to, to come forward. Because at the end of the day, they just want to know what what happened. They just want to, to understand their experience. Um, and so if you go through and uh and just try to filter um by you know uh most like most credible and and that is to say uh did the person go on the record was and if they didn't uh then was the investigator at least able to speak to them direct uh, directly um you know are we familiar with the 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 sighting area all, all of that kind of stuff and and if you do that then you know um 150 shrinks down to probably half of that. Um, but, you know, that isn't to say that the rest of it should just be thrown out. Now, like, for instance, when I mentioned before uh, the the uh, misidentifications, you know, that was a really important part of, or still is, a really important part of this investigation. You know, there for some time had been sort of two different profiles for sightings where on the one hand you had these daytime sightings that didn't really have any paranormal aspects and people saw the thing from very far away and it was always flying. And uh, on the other uh, hand, you had this other profile sightings where, um, you know, people would see this thing relatively close and there were paranormal aspects and, um, you know, it the the dimensions of it didn't really allow for it to be something like a, a bird. Um, you know, again, as long as you assume that the, the witness was authentically relating their experience. And um, and so being able to, through some uh, circumstantial and then later uh, video evidence, show that that first profile that um, did largely represent misidentified birds was huge. Like, it was a big break for this because it allowed us to explain some of these Things and like I, I, I like to say, if we don't explain the things that we can, why would anybody believe us about the things that? We can? Uh, well said, and I appreciate you coming on the program uh, and and sharing some of your your team's research. Uh, Tobias Wayland, he is uh, the editor and the head writer for the Singular Fortean Society and author, uh, the co-author of Lake Michigan Mothman, High Strangeness in the Midwest. Website singularfortean.com. Appreciate you coming on uh, board the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Good night, everyone.